Welcome to Behind the Line, where we pull back the curtain on the challenges facing first responders and frontline workers. The work you do is unique, and so are the stresses that go with it. Join me as we tackle key issues to reduce risks for burnout, and as we work to support you in doing the job you love without sacrificing being the kind of person you want to be. Hey there, and welcome back to Behind the Line. I'm your host, Lindsay Foss. If you're new to Behind the Line, what you should know about me is that I'm a clinical counselor specializing in trauma therapy. And after over a decade working with first responders and frontline workers around issues like burnout, compassion fatigue, PTSD, and related OSIs, I have become a passionate wellness advocate and educator for those who sacrifice so much for our communities out on the front lines. Behind the Line is a place for us to talk about the real-life, behind-the-scenes challenges facing you on the front lines. I created this podcast with the hope of bringing easy access to skills for wellness, allowing you to find greater sustainability both on the job and off. We are opening up a new series today, and I am so glad you're here with me. Since starting this podcast... One of the most frustrating things I hear all too often is that as frontline workers, you're told to be aware of trauma, to be looking out for PTSD, to be on alert that you are at higher risk for stress-related mental health concerns, but then never being told what to look for, not knowing what exactly PTSD looks like, feels like how to know when there's a problem before it's so bad that you can't convince yourself to get out of bed and face the world. That trend is so very concerning to me. While I know we've made gains in reducing the stigma of mental health concerns, and that things like therapy are being made more accessible and are encouraged more by workplaces now than ever before in history, What does any of that matter if we aren't equipping people with the basic knowledge of what the hell to look for? How can we expect people to get support and do the work to help themselves if they don't even know there's a problem? This stood out to me most starkly a while back, and I've referenced it a number of times on this show since then, when Jen Pound came on and talked about her PTSD symptoms manifesting physically. She felt sick like she had a bad flu that she just couldn't shake. No one told her what to look for. Despite posters from occupational health that said to be watchful for indicators of occupational stress injuries, no one clarified what exactly to be on watch for. So it went on and on and on, untreated, assumed to be some kind of bug, until it got so bad that it could no longer be chalked up to the flu. And by then, the damage was so severely done that it becomes a totally different kind of ball game to try to play out. I hate this. I hate that this is a thing. I hate that you are trained to identify markers of mental health concerns in those you serve, but aren't trained to look for your own. Whose brilliant idea was that? So during this series, we're going to talk about some of the hallmark concerns that show up in people who are exposed to trauma and high-stress experiences. We will also talk about some of the less hallmark, but equally need-to-know pieces to be aware of. Of all of the series I have done on this show, this one is among the most important, and I hope that you will listen, use what we talk about, 
And please, please, please help others working alongside you by sharing it as far and wide as you possibly can. This, you guys, is the stuff that can help us turn the tide on so much of what is plaguing frontline workplaces. We can make it different, but I need your help. Today, I want us to talk about hypervigilance. Hypervigilance is the word we use to describe the feeling of being on high alert. That feeling when your body feels tense and activated, ready to do what it needs to do to keep you or others safe. It's an on-edge feeling, a heightened feeling. I often describe it as an angsty feeling. When we are in vigilance, there are a number of changes that happen for our brains and bodies. This state is the readiness that would, in a stress-inducing situation, give way to fight, flight, freeze, or fawn responses. When we feel it, muscle tension increases, blood flow changes, body temperature changes, breath rate and heart rate both change. Our senses will tend to feel heightened, looking and listening for indication of threat. Our brains will tend to get super focused, scanning and assessing. That's vigilance. But what about hypervigilance? Well, this is vigilance on speed. It's an activated state that carries with us, regardless of the scenario. It's extra, beyond what we need and beyond when we need it. When nothing stressful or threatening is happening, it is energy directed to waiting for something that, frankly, isn't coming. More often than not, it's wasted energy. It's ridiculously depleting. Why would your brain want you to be on edge when you're having a bubble bath or trying to fall asleep under your comfy blankets or when you're sipping your coffee in your favorite chair in the morning? Well, because stress and trauma generalize. What that means is that our brains expand stressful and traumatic experiences in an effort to protect us not just from bad things that have happened, but also from any possibly affiliated things, even in close proximity to a thing that's happened. And they think a great way to serve you is by having you ready for anything all of the time. Some people would talk about this as triggering, and they are connected. A trigger is exposure to something that our brain has associated with a traumatic experience, whether consciously or not. And when our brain picks up on that trigger, it elicits a hypervigilant response, an over-the-top protective activation, even though there's nothing of particular importance to be activated by right this moment. For lots of people, vigilance will come up in very specific situations when triggered by specific stimuli related to specific past events or experiences. For others, their vigilance will feel persistent and unabating. The thing about hypervigilance is that, number one, it's not natural. And number two, it's not helpful. What do I mean by not natural? Well, While vigilance is a natural protective response, hypervigilance does not work with what our bodies were intended to give us. Our bodies are meant to have a reactive self-protective response to a threat, but it's meant to be very time-limited. 
It's meant to come up, advise me to fight for my life or run as fast as my feet will take me or hold my breath and hope to God it's over soon. And then it's meant to subside gradually as our system finds itself in safety again. Our brains and bodies didn't plan for being in persistent threat where safety is never known or felt. They aren't meant to run in this state all the time. The energy cost is way too high, and the depletion connected to it is immense. Which is why for many people who live in this state, they struggle with fatigue, irritability, feeling like they have a short fuse. The vigilance burns the wick so short that there isn't much left to work with. Think of it kind of like your computer's CPU. If you have a couple of things running, you know, in the background and you're working on a Word document and you've got like the things that it's normally intended to do, it runs pretty smoothly. But if you are bombarding it with like 10 different high def video files running simultaneously, it's going to start to lag. It can only pull so much energy draw for so many high requirement things at the same time. It's not meant to do that for prolonged periods, and it will eventually slow down to the point that it freezes up and doesn't work at all. We are just like that. We are a limited resource. And when we are running in hypervigilance, it is like having too many video files open. On top of that, hypervigilance is rarely helpful. Your brain is choosing to stay stuck in vigilance because it believes that despite not being made to do this, it's better to stay here than lower your defenses and risk something happening you weren't ready for. It's maybe not terrible in theory, but in actual practice, the issue is that your body carries the toll, the cost of being in this activated state for a prolonged period of time. It actually becomes less responsive, less capable of thinking and problem solving and handling something if a threat did end up popping up. The cost is more than whatever benefit it generally offers, and it can dramatically reduce our capacity to manage through a stressor or traumatic experience because we're walking into it so very depleted rather than with our best skills and capacities intact. Now, we've been naming that so much of this happens without feeling like there's a lot of conscious choice to it. Your brain and body are mapping these things without your vote, and it often feels like you're just along for the ride. It's the worst ride ever. So how do we take the reins and get off the ride? Well, two things and one caveat. Behind the Line is sponsored by Beating the Breaking Point. Beating the Breaking Point is a seven-part online training program designed specifically for first responders and frontline workers and tailored to fill the gaps in your training to support resilience and sustainability. Whether you're new to the work and wanting to cultivate tools to prevent burnout, compassion fatigue, and related concerns, or you are deep into your years on the job and have gone a few rounds with burnout and other mental health challenges, This program offers the foundational pieces you need to support personal and professional wellness for the long haul. You are a helper. You love your work and you sacrifice a lot. 
Investing in you and your sustainability is the best gift you can give yourself and those who lean on you. We make this program as risk-free as possible by offering a limited money back guarantee to ensure that it's a fit for you. If you enjoy Behind the Line, you are going to love this program. Google Beating the Breaking Point Lindsay and find everything you need to get started or use the link in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. First, opposite actions. At the start of this episode, I described some physiological ways that your body reacts when it moves into vigilance. To train our bodies that they don't need to be in that state right now, we have to help them go back to homeostasis. That place we're in when we are safe and chill and fine. When you think about the things your body does when it becomes vigilant, your goal is to do the opposite. So if you get tense, shake your muscles out. If your extremities get cold, squeeze your hands into fists to get the blood moving back into them. Scrunch your toes in your shoes to do the same thing. If your breathing gets short and fast, challenge yourself to lengthen and deepen each breath. If you tense down into tight, closed-off posture, try to stand with your feet firmly on the ground and stretch out to take up space. By putting your body in the opposite of what vigilance demands of it, you are making your brain think about whether it really needs the vigilance right now. You are coaxing it into the possibility that you are more safe than it thinks, and you are training your brain to gradually recognize the difference between threat and safety. The big trick here is consistency. When you do it consistently, you can train your brain to adjust how it interprets and interacts with stress and small triggers. If you aren't consistent with it, Your brain easily gets roped back into what it thinks is the safer option, which is to keep you hypervigilant and ready for anything, even as you try to fall asleep in your warm, safe home. Okay, I said two things and a caveat. So second, anchor to safety. Safety is a complicated thing because often we've had it until suddenly we didn't. Because of that, it can be hard to convince your brain you're safe because it knows about times when you thought you were safe and you were wrong. Your job here is to look for evidence. Be like a detective. What is there to tell you that you are safe? And what calls into question the safety? If there is a hefty long list of evidence for safety and virtually nothing on the list of evidence to suggest unsafe, then your brain and your body can anchor to that. They can rest easier in knowing that they have fully evaluated the situation to the extent that they're able and recognize that the evidence leans heavily towards this being a safe scenario. It's kind of like when your kid is afraid at nighttime. There are monsters, probably in the closet or under the bed. For sure, they're somewhere. Something bad's going to happen. It's not okay. When you get called into that moment, the job is to help your child see and know that their room is safe. You open the closet, look under the bed, 
confirm the evidence that says nothing bad is likely to happen here. You can rest easy. You help them anchor to the things that indicate safety. The window is locked. The front door is locked. We are here and we'll make sure you are safe. While it may not ease every possible ounce of anxiety, it usually does do the trick to calm things down enough to get some rest. The key here is that the evidence lets your brain off the hook for wondering what could be unsafe because it feels really grounded and clearly connected to what indicates safety. Looking at the evidence and building a case for safety is actually a really important part of the process for people who experience severe and persistent hypervigilance because safety can sometimes feel unsafe even when it is totally there and present. This is most especially true for people with more complex trauma histories, where environments that were supposed to be safe weren't, where people who were supposed to be safe weren't. When this is our experience, especially from early in life, it wires our brain to link supposed safety directly to unsafety. And we have difficulty finding a feeling of safety almost anywhere. In these cases, our brains have been forced to strongly associate what should be safe with unsafety. And they struggle to tease these apart later in life when we have more capacity to control situations and ensure our own safety. Because of this wiring, we will often have a felt sense of unsafety even when situations are completely and perfectly safe. Even more than that, we might actually find ourselves with an increased felt sense of unsafety when we are in the presence of safety. Because we are actually more familiar and kind of strangely comfortable with unsafe. It's known and predictable, kind of like the evil we know being better than the evil we don't know. For some, safety can feel threatening because we don't know what to do with it. We don't know how to trust it. We don't know who we are or how to be in it. The problem in these situations is that we're relying on our feelings as the only source of viable information. While our feelings are an important source of information, and ones we should listen to and take into consideration, They are easily skewed given our wiring, and we need to make sure we check them against other sources of data. This is where evidence comes into play. My feelings are telling me I am unsafe, but all of the evidence suggests safe. I can be informed by the feeling, but also give weight to the evidence. I might then act from a cautious, but more open place. And as I have more evidence, I can then use this to train my emotions to know the difference between safety and unsafety. Regardless of whether you've known safety and struggle with hypervigilance now in certain types of situations, or if you have always struggled with safety and experienced hypervigilance in many spaces almost all of the time, the job is the same. Develop attunement to evidence for safety, and anchor to it. Notice it. 
really pay attention to it. Examine the evidence and let it build the case for your brain to take it down a couple of notches. When you can combine these two skills, opposite actions to de-escalate hypervigilance and using evidence to anchor back to safety, you will find yourself conquering hypervigilance so much more often than you are currently feeling conquered by it. Not only that, you will have two active and awesome tools in your toolkit that you can use to help others in your life to de-escalate and regulate when they are struggling which I will tell you from lots of experience, includes kiddos. If you parent kids who struggle with feeling anxious, overwhelmed, and have a hard time settling, opposite actions are awesome because they don't have to reason or logic their way out of how they're feeling. They can just move their bodies through it. It doesn't even have to look like you're trying to address it. I have seen my kids struggling with something and switched on Nintendo Sports or the Just Dance game on our gaming system and jumped into challenging them. (laughs) They're competitive like their mom and can't say no to a challenge. Even without saying, hey, I notice you seem shut down or anxious or upset, I can get their bodies moving it through. And then I often find that after that, their brains are way more able to talk through the problem because it's not all stuck in their bodies anymore. Vigilance impacts everyone, but hypervigilance is next level. We're not meant to stay in that state of activation for any length of time. So if you're finding yourself here more than you should be, I hope you'll use these tools with consistency and intentionality. They absolutely do make a difference. And if you do try it out, I would love to hear about it. As we wrap up today, I want to remind you to please reach out and connect if you have any questions or feedback. You know I love hearing from you and shaping this podcast to echo your needs and interests. I love hearing about what you're working on and how you're using what we talk about on the show. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Lindsay A. Foss, where you can follow me or tag me, or you can email me at support at thrive-life.ca. To those who love this podcast and share about it, to those you know, I just want to continue to say a huge thank you. I so value you helping us to make a difference for other frontline helpers who risk so much to serve our communities. Know that we can be found online on our website, on most major podcast platforms, as well as on YouTube. We make all of our resources available to you because the work you do matters. But more than that, you matter. And we want to make sure you have what you need to keep up the good work at work, as well as in your real life outside of the work. So use it and share it. And until next time, stay safe.